And as you do, please uh, open up to Romans chapter 9, and we'll be in verses 14 through 18 today will be our primary uh, passage and consideration. We'll move around a little bit, but our home today will be Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. My name is Jason. I was one of the elders here at church in the square. It is good, as always, to open up God's Word together today. And now that we've found Romans chapter 9, I want to tell you about a story that Jesus told about a vineyard in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, he, he told this story because his disciples, as usual, were salvation. And if, if you ever want to be encouraged in your spiritual formation, look at the disciples. They, they are constantly closest to Jesus and constantly seem a little bit confused and hard of hearing and understanding, especially Peter. I find great solace in studying the life of Peter. Uh, Jesus is incredibly gracious and merciful towards him, and he just fumbles around, barely gets it right, and then he writes two you know, books of the New Testament. So thanks be to God. Um, Jesus tells this story to these disciples about a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire uh, some laborers to work in his vineyard. Uh, they came to terms, and then they agreed that it was going to be a denarius was going to be what they would be paid. In, in other words, a day's work for a day's wage. And they went off and started working. A few hours later, probably around 9 a.m., the, the landowner goes back to the marketplace, and he hires more people to work his vineyard, and they start working. He, he repeats this again at noon, at 3, and then probably closer to 5 p.m. And in each successive group of laborers that he gets, each new crew, they go to work and they start working. And at the end of the day, they, he has them line up. He has all the employees lined up and he has them line up in reverse order from which they come. So those who got there last were first in line and those who got there first were last in line. And as those who got there last received their payment, Jesus records a story and says, or rather um, Matthew records a story that Jesus says that those who arrived last, so they got there at 5 p.m., probably worked for about an hour, got a day's wage. They got a denarius. Now, think about that. Those who've been working all day long, we're told, look out from behind the back of the line, right? They see all of this happening, and Jesus says they thought they would receive more, right? That's logical. You saw these people who showed up at five, and they worked for an hour and a half, didn't even sweat, probably got a Gatorade, right? They didn't even sweat, didn't, didn't even hustle, and they're getting paid a day's wage. What you were going to be paid, but perhaps something has changed. They think they're going to get paid more, but they don't. The landowner pays each laborer a denarius. Every single worker, regardless of how long they worked, they received a full day's wage. Suffice to say, the first crew was not cool with that. Right? And some of us, like this righteous indignation is like showing up right now. Jesus better bring this story home well because I'm frustrated already. See, they were frustrated and probably feeling mistreated, probably feeling like they were overlooked. They, they thought, like maybe many of us, that it was unfair that they worked longer and got paid the same. And perhaps you can sympathize. And Jesus says they even grumbled, right? So this inaudible sort of frustration. And then... They share their exasperation with the owner. Matthew 20, verse 12 says, These last worked, uh, rather, these last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Did you hear the language they made equal to us? In other words, 
first crew's main frustration is rooted in comparison. In particular, their understanding of equality and superiority. They didn't think they were equals to those who showed up later. They thought they were better than them. Perhaps you can relate to that. They didn't think they were equals, but the owner treats them like they're equals. You made them equals to us. That doesn't seem fair. Here's how Jesus says the owner responds to their grumbling in verses 13 and 15 in Matthew 20. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? What's he saying? difference between various work-to-wage ratios is not a matter of fairness, it's a matter of generosity. It's not a matter of fairness, it's a matter of generosity. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story to help disciples understand the nature of salvation. So what is Jesus saying? Salvation is not a matter of fairness, it's a matter of generosity. Or to put it this way, salvation is not a matter of justice, it's a matter of mercy. Today we'll address another objection that comes in Romans chapter 9. Paul is really good at this, if you remember. Considering, thinking of an objection, and then responding to it. Last week, Paul asked, has God failed? The answer was and is and always will be, no, God never fails. This week, he'll ask, is God unjust? The answer again is no. Paul even says, by no means. But in addition to answering the question, Paul explains that mercy rather than justice is the relevant matter. Hear this, Romans chapter 9, verse 14 through 18, reads this way. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power to you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the question is, is God unjust? The answer, by no means. Ah, but we're talking about mercy. See, beneath the surface, I think Paul is exposing something. We often confuse justice and mercy don't we? That's what I'd like to talk about today. As moral people, when we experience and witness the mercy of God, we often object with negative feelings about what we perceive to be injustice, what we perceive to be a lack of fairness or equality. In other words, we confuse justice and mercy. We think that something is not fair, like disgruntled employees who got paid exactly what we agreed to get paid. No one has done you wrong. You see, we often cry injustice when we should be marveling at mercy. We often are frustrated when we should be celebrating. Today, I'd like to talk about God's mercy. I'd like to explore it in three movements. First, the will of God's mercy. Second, the power of God's mercy. And third, the justice of God's mercy. So we'll look at the will, the power, and then the justice of God's mercy. And let's ask for his help. Heavenly Father, 
as usual, we just want to confess, left to ourselves, we can't make heads or tails of the scriptures, of the gospel, or what we're even supposed to do today or tomorrow. And so it's really good news that you don't leave us to ourselves. So thankful that it's not up to the wisdom of men and women to figure out your word, but your Holy Spirit shows up, shines brightly through the scriptures and give insight that we don't even deserve, nor could we ever figure out in a lifetime of research. And you do something that no intellectual pursuit could do. You change our hearts. And so I pray for myself and my friends where there is a disgruntled grumbling in our hearts today, would you settle it with love? Where we see injustice and brokenness that really is an act of your generosity, would you help us to be humble, be grateful, and rejoice? Because I think it's when we get mercy we'll actually really understand justice too. And so I pray that you uh, would graciously speak to us you know my sisters and brothers. You know they're weak. You know what's going to happen today and tomorrow and the rest of their lives. And so you know exactly what they need, what I need right now. So we submit to you. Oh, would pithy statements and nice little tweetable phrases fall away? And would the enduring, abiding word of God transform us on the spot that we'd become holy even as he is holy? We love you. We thank you. You're really, really good to us. So we're eager to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the question is, is God unjust? And this is a relevant question because Paul has just got done explaining in the previous passage that God sovereignly elects his family members. His family members don't self-select into the family and they don't get it by birthright that God chooses his family members. Now, that whole idea that God chooses some and not others I think is really unsettling to our modern minds. And I want to address that before we move forward into the will of God. Because isn't it true, we care deeply and almost instinctually about our will, our choice, our volition, our freedom, don't we? In fact, our definition of freedom and fairness is often rooted in the idea of individual choice. But with respect, as much as I can muster, I think this is a limited view of equality. Equality should not be about giving everyone th the same agency or outcome. Rather, what we should be concerned about with equality is the same dignity and opportunity. So the question is not, does everyone have the same choice, but is everybody being treated with dignity and given the same opportunity? And the Bible actually teaches us that the only way to achieve fairness and justice and equality is God's sovereignty. The only remedy for our frustrations with equality and justice is to just all submit ourselves to the will of God. Are you understanding, picking up what I'm throwing down? It's not esteeming my will, but actually esteeming the will of another. Now, why is that the pathway that the scriptures teach? Because sin and motivation and circumstance and ability, and even in our own city, we know zip code has been tainted by the infidelity of the human heart. And therefore, our, our own agency and choice, when left to ourselves, it's actually not a good outcome. This is a foundational point that I, I hope to make clearer as we go along, but let me leave it at this and say it this way before we proceed. The way to justice is through elevating God's will. It's through esteeming God's will. The higher we esteem God's will, the more justice will be achieved. This is the mathematical equation, if you will, of justice in the scriptures. The more the will of God is done, the more justice comes. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because that's where justice shows up. That, that's where justice takes place and gets rooted into the human heart and into this earth. So the higher we esteem God's will, the more justice will be achieved. He is, after all, 
a God of justice. And Psalm 11 says he loves justice. He loves to bring justice. So the only way that I think everyone in the scriptures teach this, that everyone has the same dignity and opportunity, is when God does as he pleases. And when God gets his way. That's kind of unsettling to us. Because as modern people, we love justice, but we love our will. And so do you see, this is, this is a train wreck in our modern day. If we esteem our will, but we think we're going to get justice, it's never going to work out. What the scriptures teach is the only way to justice is a complete and utter submission to the will of God. And that's what Paul does in Romans chapter 9, verse 14 and 18. He elevates God's will. But he does so in a manner that I think is really consistent with the way that Jesus communicates about this landowner in Matthew 20. You see, Paul's words echo Jesus' message to his disciples that, about God's will and the nature of salvation. It's not a matter of fairness. It's a matter of generosity. It's not a matter of justice. It's a matter of mercy. Paul explains it in two ways by going through two different Old Testament characters that happen to uh, intersect in the same story. See, first he'll talk about Moses and say mercy is solely based on God's will. Second, he'll talk about Pharaoh and say mercy demonstrates God's power. So we'll see God's will, and then we'll look at God's power in his mercy. So first, the will of God's mercy. Romans 9, 14 and following says this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, he says, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul's quoting an exchange between Moses, or rather Paul is, between God and, and Moses from Exodus chapter 33. Uh, Israel got impatient, if you remember the story. Moses and God apparently were taking too long by their timetable to come down with the law, namely the Ten Commandments, right? And so they think God has rejected them. That's how they translated his delay, which I think is really instructive for us. We don't have time for this, but it's a really bad idea to translate God's delay with his abandonment of you, which we can often do as human people, right? But that's, that's what they do. And, and so they said, well, God abandoned us, so we'll abandon him. Quick, everybody throw in your gold coins and your jewelry and your house goods, and we'll make a God unto ourselves, and we'll worship it. That's the golden calf. So the, the golden calf comes out of impatience and believing that if we boil down jewelry and metal and gold things, that we'll have a new God who we don't have to wait on, right? That's the story. Suffice to say, God comes back. He's not impressed. Moses knows that God is righteously upset, and he pleads with him not to abandon his people. Now, justice would suggest it's really simple. Justice says you've rejected God. You've left him. Therefore, consequentially, God owes you nothing but consequence. But we're not talking about justice. We're talking about what? Mercy. Moses asks God for mercy Hear this from Exodus 33, verse 18 and 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, says God, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is what Paul is quoting. Moses asks for mercy. For an undeserved vision of God's goodness and glory when he and God's people very clearly had been sinful and therefore undeserving. And what's God's answer? Does he say, I will be merciful or I will not be merciful? He actually says, I will be merciful to some. I will show mercy to some. God makes it clear that he's not going to save all of Israel. This is what we looked at last week. But he would show mercy on some. And, and notice, 
his response is completely rooted in his will. If if we investigate just that passage from Exodus 30, God talks about his will four times. He says, I will make my goodness. I will proclaim before you. I will be gracious. I will show mercy. Do you see? Mercy is based solely, utterly, and completely on God's will. Back in Romans, Paul is clear about the consequence of sin, isn't it? I think maybe this is a passage that many of us knew before our Romans series, that the wages of sin is what? Death. That's justice. Justice is the execution of righteousness. It's a forensic or legal righting of wrongs. Justice is getting what by sin we deserve. Justice is getting what? A day's wage for a day's work. That's justice. That's right. That's accurate. That fits. The just payment for sin, then, is death and separation from God. Yet the Christian story is about something which intercepts this righteous consequence. Something overwhelms the simple wage works paradigm, right? And what is it? It's generosity. It's mercy. That's Jesus' point in Matthew 20. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 9. Mercy disrupts the natural and righteous flow of justice toward guilty sinners. This is really good news. That mercy is based solely on God's will, not our will, but on his kindness and his love. Not our work, but his benevolence. So the question, is God just? Is he unjust? Is is it unfair that God chooses some and not others? Paul says, by no means. And why does he say that? Well, because we're talking about mercy. We're talking about mercy. Mercy is an act purely of God's will. This is important that this settles in our souls because it protects us from a lot of corrosive and destructive ways of thinking and living, of centering ourselves in our own spiritual story, of, of not being humble, of being entitled. When we see that the mercy of God is purely motivated by the will of God, I have nothing to demonstrate for my own glory. Because if I've been saved by his will, it's going to make me humble. God's worry, mercy, then, to put it another way, requires nothing from us. In Jesus' story, the wages are not based on work. It's not based on time. It's not based on the compensation that the workers desire, right? What's it based on? Generosity. It's purely based on generosity. You see, if mercy is something that we make happen, it ceases to be mercy. If mercy is something that you've earned, it's not mercy. It's a payment. And when we understand that, that mercy is a gift, initiated, given completely by God's free will, we'll see this power begin to materialize, the power of God's mercy. And instead of critiquing it, what are we going to do? We'll marvel at it. We'll marvel at it. We don't marvel enough. We don't just worship God enough and just be overwhelmed by who he is. This is what Paul is doing us. He is creating a cathedral of words. He's inviting you to step in and just be in awe of it. Just be amazed. This is one of the ways that we just let God take care of us instead of just hustling for our holiness all the time. We just step into the words that he says is true about us and about who he is, and we just are grateful. We love application points, but what do I got to do? Sometimes you just need to shut up, be still, and chill, and bask in the goodness and grace and mercy of God. I think this is one of those texts. Think about that workforce again. The first crew was so concerned that their vision of fairness and of justice had had failed and had not happened. They were so indignant that they missed 
allowing the generosity of their boss to affect them in any way. Their hearts were hard, right? Can you imagine if their response would have been, I have never had a boss like this, ever. This is amazing. An employer who deals in character and generosity, can you even imagine that if in your work, the the character that drove decision-making was generosity and, 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 and love and mercy, what would you respond if that first crew like had a, I'm going to tell everybody about this job. I want them to hire my grandmother and my sister and my next door neighbor. I want everybody to work for this person. This is a really great place to work. Why? Because this is a, blo- a boss who doesn't just not treat you unfairly, but blesses you beyond what you deserve. In, in the ancient world and in this world, we know a lot of bosses who deal in injustice, a lot of companies that deal in injustice, and the bottom line dictates all they do, right? Amen? This is constantly what we're, every time I sit down with one of you and talk about your job, this is a constant tension, that money is driving decision-making and not character. Can you imagine if, if they would have seen that, if they would have seen and observed, wow, this boss operates, this company operates in generosity, I'm going to tell everybody about this, but instead... What were they? They were centered on their will and not the will of the landowner. That something in their worldview was busted and broken and they didn't just gravitate toward the love and generosity. They were preoccupied, in other words, with what they got or didn't get. We see God's mercy. We should cry injustice. We should marvel at the power of his mercy. That's what Paul explains next. Look at verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. See, we continue to see this first idea reinforced, don't we, that God's mercy is about God's will. But now we see that God's mercy also possesses this kind of power. You see that? That I might show my power in you, God says to Pharaoh. See, during the Egyptian captivity, God sends Moses to famously proclaim, iconically proclaim to Pharaoh what? Let my people go over and over and over again. And Pharaoh constantly refuses God. In fact, Exodus 9 records that for this purpose I've raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself among my people and will not let them go. So this is what Paul is borrowing from. Exodus 33 about Moses and now Exodus 9 in his telling of the story of Pharaoh. Now notice, by God's will, God raised up Pharaoh, but also Pharaoh exalted himself. God is not the only one with a will. Yes, God's will makes salvation and mercy possible, but when it comes to what Paul calls a hardening, both the will of God and the will of humanity are involved. See, mercy is all about God's will, yet in some measure, justice is about the will of the people and the will of God. See, God raised up Pharaoh, and Pharaoh exalted himself. God's will, Pharaoh's will. Now, why is this so pertinent? Because look at verse 17 in Romans 9. Paul says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. However, God never hardens a heart which has not already been hardened by sin toward God. Remember back in Romans chapter 1, like 23 years ago, right? You remember this. Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. What, what, what happens when Paul is talking about the wrath of God? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. He gives them over to something they have already chosen. Similarly, 
God hardens hearts that have already been hardened towards him. That's what happened with Pharaoh. The next, Dr. Tim points out that God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will let my people go. This happens in six or seven different passages in Exodus. We're also told that Pharaoh hardened his heart in six different passages. So, in some way, Keller says, both are true. Both things are true. That's justice. God leaves some to themselves. He leaves Pharaoh to himself. He gives some over to the sin that they have already chosen. He does not give mercy to all, but that doesn't make him unjust. In fact, that reveals his justice. See, to some, he pays a day's wage for a day's work, and others, he pays a day's wage for an hour's worth of work. That is precisely the definition of justice. C.S. Lewis famously explains this in his book, The Great Divorce, where he says there are two kinds of people, one to whom they say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says to them, thy will be done. That's what I'm trying to say, but Lewis almost always, who am I kidding, always puts it better. It seems as though when it comes to mercy, it's only God's will that matters. But when it comes to justice, both human will and God's will are at work, this is why mercy reveals the power of God. It interrupts the natural and righteous flow of justice. Mercy demonstrates the power of God over my will. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way in his sermon on this passage, that the mystery, the thing that we ought to be amazed about, is not that he has mercy upon some and not others, This is what we're often preoccupied by. What what does he say? What does Lloyd-Jones say? But that he has mercy upon anybody at all, and especially that he has had mercy upon us. That's what ought to be so captivating to us, the generosity of God. God's mercy, his merciful power is amazing. By by hardening Pharaoh's heart, God's power is put on display because through this hardening, he reveals his mercy toward Israel by freeing them from slavery. His justice to Pharaoh, in other words, reveals his mercy toward Israel. His power overwhelms the powers of this world. His power overwhelms the power of sin. His power overwhelms oppression and suffering. Some of you know this story personally. You are wrapped up and bound in addiction that by your will you could not overcome, but God's will interrupted the natural order and the righteous order of justice. God interrupted the natural consequences that were coming your way and mine by our sin, what we deserve. It is such good news that we don't all get justice. But that God extends mercy. God is not weak because he doesn't show everyone mercy. God is powerful because he was able and is willing and is generous enough to show anyone and anybody or somebody mercy. Is God unjust? Is he unfair? And he chooses some and not others by no means. Why? Well, because we're talking about mercy. See, mercy is an act of God's will. Mercy is an act of God's power. But let's be honest. Doesn't it feel a little bit like Paul's ducking the question? Right? Like a really good preacher who wasn't prepared for a particular question in front of some people. They go, what about justice? He's like, can I just tell you about mercy so we don't have to talk about that? Yes, the focus is on mercy and not justice. But God's mercy, hear this, church, requires that justice is first satisfied. Mercy requires that justice is satisfied. Otherwise, mercy is actually permissiveness and impotent. 
C.S. Lewis explained the relationship to justice and mercy in his book, God in the Dock, which is a play on words because it was a book about putting God on trial. He says, as there are plants which flourish only in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. Let's think about it this way. What's he getting at? If there is no such thing as justice, where the righteous consequences come to those who have violated, who have broken, who have sinned, who have betrayed the covenant, then there is no such thing as a moral order and a consequence and accountability. If those things are not true, then mercy is an illusion. If there are no real consequences, then you, you cannot have merciful withholding of consequences. It's bearing false witness. Right? This is what I do with my children. This is why God is so much holier than me. I throw out consequences that aren't real in order to motivate them to change their behavior. Right? I throw, it's actually not real. I just go, if you do that one more time, then we're never going to Disneyland. We're never going to McDonald's ever again. You will never smile the rest of your life, right? You throw out all of these hardcore consequences. And I know I'm, I'm not actually telling the truth. What's my motivation? I just want them to get to do what, do what I want them to do. So then when I don't, when I, when I then therefore do not place that consequence on them when I never intended to, am I being merciful? No. I'm actually lying to them. So, so are you understanding? The only way mercy makes sense is if justice is real. And so Paul is talking to us about mercy. Why? Because I can only talk about mercy when I have already grounded you in the reality that justice is actually a real thing. Or we might put it this way. Without truth, love wilts. It dies. Without love, truth crushes us. Justice and mercy, in other words, they belong together. We often pull them apart. Think about a society without justice, only mercy. Imagine a courtroom in that society which only exists to excuse the accused. You show up for your trial date and you know they're going to let you off the hook. They're just going to have mercy on you. There's no accountability. There's only permissiveness. There is no protection for the vulnerable, only permissiveness to the oppressor. Truth then becomes relative, if not irrelevant, in a society without justice and only mercy. Truth doesn't even matter. Now think about a society without mercy, but only justice. The same courtroom that only doles out consequences in the full extent of the law. There's no compassion, only condemnation. All relationships are relegated to transactions between actions and their consequences. There's no love. You did this, you get this. Now think about yourself. You and I generally, and I think very easily, can gravitate toward justice or mercy to the exclusion of the other. Think about your own heart. And, and ultimately what happens, and I, I hope that you're understanding this, that, that we're catching a vision of what God's world is meant to be like. Choose mercy and not justice, you actually lose both. See, always choosing mercy leads to an unbridled freedom, which eventually makes mercy meaningless, as we've described. Choosing only justice leads to coldness and the eventual evaporation of justice. You see, left to ourselves, like the Israelites, we make our own God, don't we? But instead of gold boiling down our uh, home goods and our jewelry and our coins, instead of those things, we choose mercy or justice, love or truth, and we live our lives accordingly. We build our lives on one or the other. Ultimately, here's, here's I think, what's going on. 
our view of mercy and justice reveals our view of God. The way we relate to mercy and justice reveals who we think God is. Some of us think God is merciful. Some of us think God is just. But rarely do we understand how those play and have harmony within themselves. Miroslav Volf, who's a professor at Yale, describes it this way, and I think very helpfully. We, We either see God as the negotiator or God as the doting grandparent. So God the negotiator is the one who's all about justice. And if we've done something wrong, then we'll go, okay, I will be a missionary forever, like in the place that I don't want to go, because if you let me off the hook for this thing that I did, right? We start to go to God who deals in justice, not mercy, and we know we have to make a deal with him because justice has to be satisfied somewhere. So I'll lay down this, I'll hurt this way, just don't hurt me that way, right? If we see God as a negotiator, then when we do something wrong, we go to him who only deals in justice and we try to barter with him, right? You ever been there? I've prayed those prayers. If you're you're saying no, you're lying because we do that all the time. We do that all the time. Or God is the doting grandparent, Wolf says. And a doting grandparent, you know, you've been to your grandma or grandpa's house, and many perhaps grew up in a situation where, like, you couldn't wait to hang out at their house because there was no such thing as consequence in their house. You did whatever you wanted. They just loved you. They had no accountability. They may want you to generally fall in line, but they'd throw money at you to get you to do that. So you were down with that kind of protocol, right? They, they love us as their favorite, but they are never trying to push us into an understanding of righteousness and justice and truth, right? So our understanding of mercy and justice actually reveal our view of God. Church, this is what makes the cross so uncomfortable, but so brilliant. Both God the negotiator and God the doting grandparent never survived the cross because the cross is irrelevant to both of them. Our God, our vision of God, our wrong vision of God that is either just or merciful, the the cross actually doesn't make any sense. See, because on the cross, a different story is told about God, who is neither all justice nor all mercy. But Paul told this in Romans 3 verse 26, that when Jesus died on the cross, he became just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's that mean? That on the cross, there is justice. Why? Because Jesus paid the righteous wage of death. He paid the price. But there's mercy. Why? Because he paid it for us. So God is not either all justice or all mercy. Somehow mysteriously on the cross, we see that he's both. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of justice. Jesus is just and the justifier. Do you see, salvation is not a matter of fairness. It's a matter of generosity. It's not a matter of justice. It's a matter of mercy. We have not received what by our sin we deserved because Jesus received it for us. We're talking about mercy. Do you see, God does not abandon mercy to be just, and he does not abandon justice to be merciful. In Christ, he embodies both perfectly and completely. You see, in our sin, we are the first workers who showed up. In our sin, We are those who showed up early in the morning and through the the sweat of our brow worked all day long and at the end of the day, we received exactly what was coming to us. A denarius, a day's wage, death. Yet by the sheer grace of God, the story of the gospel says that we can become like those who showed up at nine, noon, three, and five who received what they did not deserve a day for something you didn't earn. A few hours of labor. What do we ultimately receive? Generosity. 
mercy, salvation. In conclusion, Jesus tells his disciples that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Upside down dichotomy and paradox, if you will, that not enrage the Christian. It should cause celebration in us. When we see a neighbor receive something that we know they didn't earn or deserve, we should worship a merciful God who acts like that towards us. And do not get frustrated when our vision of justice is not satisfied because mercy has shown up, but worship a God who is merciful to some by his sheer generosity. Is God unjust? Is he unfair that God chooses some and not others? By no means. Why? Well, because we're talking about mercy. And we cannot talk about mercy until justice has been satisfied. And in Jesus, justice has been satisfied. So enjoy his mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help. Left to ourselves, we certainly can just grow hard-hearted toward grace and mercy. We can compare ourselves with our neighbor, our brother and sister, when they receive something what we think we deserve. When you've acted in kindness toward them in a way that's different than us. Help us certainly not to be a people who disregard justice, but to be a people who understand on the other side of justice is a great gift of mercy. And that's who you are. You are a God who is fully just. You are a God who is fully merciful. So help us to be a people who could be described as such. There is a people who love the truth and who love the truth of love, who are justice-oriented, who are oriented towards mercy, who embody the qualities of our Savior. So help us by your Spirit in that, we pray. This week, even now, for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.